Welcome back to 60 Weeks, 60 Books and a final episode about the Holocaust. Last week, I talked about the book that set me on a search for some understanding of the Holocaust and how it could conceivably have happened. Daniel Goldhagen's Hitler's Willing Executioners. After I closed it for the final time, I remember feeling as though a chasm of some sort had opened up for me. The books and films and plays about the Holocaust that I had already seen uh, and read before reading Goldhagen were focused on the experience of individuals. They were personal stories. Sophie's choice, Judith Carr's family, Primo Levi's memories, even the magisterial and exhaustive documentary Shoah by Claude Lanzmann was a collection of individual eyewitness accounts. What Goldhagen did was to chronicle atrocity after atrocity, barbaric act after barbaric act, in such volume and detail that it felt as though there was only one inevitable conclusion, that we humans were, and always will be, morally bankrupt. Our brutish, vicious nature is innate. Our destiny and fate are cruelty and extinction. The achievements of humanity are the triumphs of individual spirit and endeavour, but the failures of humanity are collective and outweigh the best that we can offer. What do Bach, Beethoven, Shakespeare and Titian mean before the overwhelming evidence of our depravity? I read book after book about the Holocaust in a search for understanding for some way to come to terms with the extent and significance of that terrible period in our history. And around me, we also had the amplification by our 24-7 news cycle of ongoing atrocities. I read more memoirs. I read Martin Gilbert's History of the Holocaust. I read children's books and fictional accounts. The fictional accounts were the least satisfying, and in some cases, I thought they were actively and grotesquely wrong. Of the fiction, I would now recommend only the short stories compiled in This Way to the Gas, Ladies and Gentlemen, by Tadeusz Borowski, a political prisoner from 1942 in first Auschwitz and then Dachau, and Fugitive Pieces, a novel by the Canadian writer Anne Michaels, which is more a meditation or elegy on loss and grief and trauma than any outright reconstruction of events. Gradually, I built for myself a framework for understanding what happened, how it happened, and its aftermath. Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning and Georges Semprun's The Long Journey were two of the memoirs that strove to make sense of the experiences of the men who had been in concentration camps. Gita Sereni's Into That Darkness about Treblinka and its terrible commandant, Franz Stangl, explained both the mechanics of extermination and the mindset and outlook of a perpetrator. But at some point, whilst we were still living in Brighton, I came across a book by Bulgarian philosopher and critic Svetan Todorov. Todorov was born in Sofia in 1939. He grew up in a totalitarian society, leaving at the age of 24 in the early 60s to study in France. He studied under Roland Barthes, the French structuralist who explored symbols and semiotics, and in the 1960s established himself as an expert in literary narrative and symbols and semiotics, 
But by the 1980s, his work began to focus more and more on aspects of ethics and history, shaped by his own experiences as a child and teenager in an authoritarian environment, one which he deeply opposed. That grounding in tyranny and the surreal irrationality of life in a Stalinist regime also equipped Todorov to examine the world of the Lager, the KZ and the Gulag in search of exactly what I too was seeking, some trace of humanity in the most inhumane of environments. For a book about the Holocaust, facing the extreme is short. So many historical accounts are huge perhaps rightly for a huge and terrible subject. But Facing the Extreme is around 300 pages, written and translated in an accessible and immediate style, divided into three core sections, one exploring the prisoners within the system, the second unpicking the choices, decisions, behaviour and personality of the captors, the guards and the leaders who operated the system, and the third, exploring the confrontations that occurred and how people responded to these. Todorov seeks to explore how the camps created by Nazism and Communism were, as he describes it, the logical outcome of the totalitarian project. At a time when populism is on the rise, when passionate intensity and fear seem to underpin public discourse and harsh men are at the helm in state after state, It has been rewarding to return to Todorov's exploration of our moral lives in extreme conditions. First, he explores the deliberate structure and operation of the camps as an extreme form of determinism, where human individuality and creativity must be suppressed and destroyed, where the intention is to make the inmate brutish and basic, reduced through cold, through hard labour, through starvation and beatings. But where the men and women running camps and gulags across Europe sought to degrade and extinguish their fellow humans, Todorov finds clear evidence that the core of what makes us human, what makes us moral, the acts, the choices and the ideas of morality persist. The The moral, the ethical, survived under extreme conditions. Infrequently, compromised, but still more than just an occasional flicker. Even those who later recounted acts of unspeakable immorality and cruelty provided evidence of barbarism and a collapse of moral order, also provided evidence that however hard we try to destroy the best in our fellow humans, to turn us one against the other, to create deliberately an environment where people are reduced and vulnerable to making immoral choices, we are capable of transcending the ugly world in which we find ourselves and performing acts that are objectively good acts. Todorov challenges the Hobbesian view that men's lives are nasty, brutish and short, and in so doing also challenges the darkness depicted in so many accounts of atrocities and horrors. In our modern world of social media, knee-jerk responses, conspiracy theories, the general recoil from critical thinking and liberalism, it is easy to be pessimistic. To be optimistic as countries burn either literally from wildfires or war or in apparently interminable, complicated conflicts, as huge numbers of people are displaced, wounded, murdered, as liberties and freedoms are undermined, 
to be optimistic seems currently naive and as simplistic as pessimism. Todorov inhabits neither camp. He explores the distinction and the blurring of boundaries between what he calls vital values, the drive to survive at all costs, and moral values, the drive to retain one's humanity in the most extreme and brutal of circumstances. He also distinguishes between moral values and spirituality that has been identified by some inmates as a byproduct of their imprisonment. Todorov acknowledges that there are some who felt that they emerged from the camps wiser and closer to what they have perceived as a particular truth, often a religious truth where extreme suffering led to some degree of enlightenment. However, he does not equate that with moral virtue. He explores moral choices in the camps because he believed that it was, in his words, more visible and therefore more telling. In other words, that the moral virtue that did emerge was a clear indicator of our general capacity as a species to make moral choices. Todorov explores both what he describes as ordinary virtues and heroic virtues. He looks at questions of dignity and caring at how, in our infinite variety as humans, some of us will choose perhaps to do whatever it is we are assigned to do to our best ability, to a high standard, while others will sabotage the work. And both of these can be moral positions, and both have validity. Performing the acts demanded of prisoners by their captors and guards was part and parcel of the world of the camp, but how one did it was a personal choice, and as with all human choice, these were complex and ambiguous. One individual's dignity is another's subjugation. Todorov worked on facing the extreme at a time of upheaval. As the Berlin Wall was coming down, as the Soviet system was collapsing, the book was published in France in 1991, translated into English in 1996. In the intervening years, there has been a deepening understanding of how kindness, caring for others, altruism, all are key to an individual's mental health. Equipped as we are with increasingly sophisticated means of measuring what happens in our brains, with longitudinal psychological studies into happiness and the key to a meaningful life, we have incontrovertible evidence that when we do things for others, we help ourselves. Todorov identifies this. First, the multiple ways in which people cared for each other in the camps, how survival was often a collective act, and how those supportive acts, however small, were a means of providing oneself with a goal beyond survival, with a reward and a sense of purpose and fulfilment that are a bulwark against depravity and evil. Another key idea for me was Todorov's examination of what he calls the life of the mind, the place of the arts and the aesthetic in our humanity. He observes that music, art and literature all provided solace to prisoners in the camps, but they also held dangers and certainly provided no protection against succumbing to evil. He notes the love of music and art of many of the most evil individuals, Hers, Mengele, Eichmann, Speer, engaged in the destruction and extinction of their fellow humans. One may be at once cultured and monstrous. Yet he reminds us that Plato and Shakespeare 
as he put it, left the world more beautiful and more intelligible than they found it. And with that simple statement, it goes to the heart of why the life of the mind matters so much, or should. In itself, a piece of music has no moral weight. As I pondered the ideas of this podcast, I was listening to the work of a young guitarist, Plinio Fernandes, who has adapted and recorded classic Brazilian pieces as well as Bach for the guitar. Listening to his interpretations of preludes and fugues of The Girl from Ipanema and Aguas de Marzo, there is no morality to the notes. They could accompany sweet and delicate moments or hideous acts. To me, though, Fernandes's work leaves me with a greater sense of beauty and intelligibility, and that has its own worth, even if it is distinct from virtue. There is more, much more, in this concise, rigorous and beautiful book. It was one of the books which I finished and reread immediately, and now on rereading it, I can scarcely leave it. In the intervening years since I first read it, I have read other books and engaged with other ideas that have given me a keener, more demanding view of virtue, of moral decisions and choices, of identifying what it is to live a good life. But, on returning this week to Todorov, I find that re-reading him has only enriched those questions and my responses to them. Goldhagen plunged me into what felt like a morass, a moral dead end, a dark place, in which underpinning all our acts as humans, however humane, was the inevitability of our wickedness. Christians might wish to ascribe this to original sin, to that moment of eating of the fruit of the tree of wisdom, but the story of Eve and her desire to understand the world around her better has always seemed to me deeply flawed as a metaphor for wickedness. Todorov created a lifeline, a guide, a rational and plausible handbook to understanding how we carry in us the capacity for virtue and the capacity for evil, and how our work as humans is to live consciously and conscientiously fighting evil, encouraging virtue to flourish. Join me next week as I take a look at a very different perspective on history, celebrating one of the masterworks of one of our finest contemporary historians, Simon Sharma, and his core work, The Embarrassment of Riches. <laughs>